Well, it's been a, a great pleasure and an honor for us to start reading our books, Faith Like Potatoes. You might be asking yourself a question, where did a name like that come from? Well, I can honestly tell you it never came from me. There was a Scottish preacher, Peter Marshall. He had an incredible way with words. They say that students used to come and sit in the back of his meetings just to hear him speak the English language. And he said to his students one day, you must have faith, faith that is tangible, faith that you can touch, faith that you can see, faith like <laughs> potatoes. Chapter two, how it all began. I'm a real Scottish lad. My parents were born in Aberdeenshire in Scotland. My dad, a young country blacksmith, came to Africa at the age of 18, just before the Second World War broke out. He joined up with the 1st Battalion of the Transvaal Scottish Regiment and was sent up to North Africa. Dad was captured there and would then spend three and a half years in a prisoner of war camp in Germany before being repatriated to Scotland where my mom was waiting patiently for him. After they married, my parents moved to Pilgrim's Rest in South Africa where my father worked as a blacksmith in the gold mines. They decided to move north to Zimbabwe, which was called Southern Rhodesia in those days. And that is where I was born. My younger brother and sister were also born there. Later, we moved further north to Zambia, where I spent most of my childhood. This move was very providential because it was here that I met the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. I think I was about six or seven years old at the time. A friend and I went to a local bioscope cinema. There was no television to keep us at home, and this was a time of great social interaction. Here all the kids would swap comics <laughs> at interval, and it was a very important highlight in our lives. Hey, what's going on here? My friend exclaimed. We were expecting to see a movie, but something very different was about to happen. Billy Graham must have been having a gospel crusade somewhere, and one of his workers was preaching at the cinema that afternoon. I have never forgotten that moment. As I listened to this man speak, conviction gripped my young heart. And when the altar call was made, I was one of the first to respond. I gave my life to Jesus that afternoon. Many people wonder about the results of mass evangelism and whether those who respond continue in the faith after the evangelist goes home. I know that when God does a real work in anyone's heart, something happens. And that is why I always give people an opportunity to respond to God when I preach. The Bible says that you cannot call Jesus Lord unless the Holy Spirit moves you and I defy anyone to pray the sinner's prayer without being touched by God. From that moment, my life was changed radically. I joined the local Presbyterian church and became a Sunday school teacher at the age of 16, preaching my first sermon when I was only 17 years of age. It wasn't a long sermon. It only lasted for about six and a half minutes. <laughs> but it was one of the most exciting moments of my young life. I loved going to church. My family never went with me, but I went regularly on my bicycle. 
The minister was so sure I wouldn't miss, he asked me to lock up the church after the evening service. Dad would tease me for going. As I grew older, the teasing and the jabs he would throw at me were quite tough to take. But I hung in there trying to serve the Lord, but never quite getting there. The seed had, however, been planted. And one day, by His grace, the Lord would cause it to germinate. Although I grew up in a mining town, I always had a strong desire to become a farmer. So my parents decided to send me to an agricultural college in the north of Scotland. I was only 19 years old. I did not have the required matric certificate, just a school leaving certificate for standard eight. But they agreed to accept me on condition that I didn't fail. Praise the Lord, I came out of it with a credit. Those two and a half years in Scotland were wonderful. But unfortunately, they didn't do my spiritual life much good. Sadly, I began to drift into the world. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. In my eyes, I was not much of a catch. My face was pimply. I was knock-kneed. Not a good start, especially where the girls were concerned. I couldn't speak to more than two people at a time, and I felt that I had no natural abilities at all. I still feel like that. That is why I have such a fear of God and a love for the Holy Spirit so much. Without Him, I can do nothing of real value. I decided to work on my self-image. By the time I came back home, I'd put on some weight. I went to the gym and also started playing rugby. My social life improved a great deal, but I was very far from God. There is an emptiness in the heart of man that nothing but God Himself can fill. St. Augustine spoke of it as a God-shaped vacuum. I understood that vacuum because I felt it so keenly. A change of lifestyle was called for, I decided. At the age of 23 years old, I emigrated to Australia and became a cowboy, riding horses for a living. I went to church only once in the entire year that I spent there. But all the time, I was aware of a tugging in my heart and a deep-seated desire to meet with God again. A feeling of restlessness simmered in my heart. I would go back home to Zambia, I decided. And soon, I was managing a big farm in the central part of Zambia called Broken Hill. I've always been a go-getter, so it wasn't long before I went out on my own. My precious wife and best friend, Jill, came into my life, and within two years of our marriage, we had our own farm. I bought out my partner, and we became the proud owners of a beautiful 3,500-acre farm with its herd of 250 beef cattle, 1,000 acres of arable land, 6,000 broiler chickens a month, pigs, watermelons, and four tractors, all paid for. <laughs> There was even a river running through the grounds. We loved it, and it seemed like we would settle down at last. But it was not to be so. Conditions got very bad in Zambia, at the height of the bush war in Zimbabwe, and so we decided to go south. Educational facilities were very poor, and we were determined not to put our children into boarding school. Jill felt extremely strongly about that. She had grown up in a boarding school and hardly knew her parents. We wanted to be there for our children, and we're so glad that we made that decision. All of them love us, and most importantly, love the Lord. Well, we agreed it's time to go. 
It was the 23rd of December, 1976, and we knew it would be a very different Christmas for us that year. We had been forced to sell the farm for a mere pittance, way below its value. But I was determined to start again. I knew we had to leave everything behind in Zambia. I was only 28 years old. Now I had to start all over again. I wondered if I could, but there was no other way. Jill and I, Andrew, Lindy, and little Robin started packing. What shall we take with us? Asked the children. Everything we can fit in, I told them. We filled our Mercedes-Benz truck and a trailer to capacity. It was amazing what it took. In went a tractor, a lathe, welding machines, tools, and we were off. It was a hair-raising trip across the border. Joshua and Como's soldiers were coming in from Botswana, and we had to drive all the way from the central part of Zambia right down to Livingston and then on to Zimbabwe. The Victoria Falls Road was blocked, so we drove up country towards Botswana. We crossed the mighty Zambezi River into Botswana on a pontoon. From there, we motored into Zimbabwe, and then we drove all the way down to Swaziland, where I found some work. Jill and I were determined to buy our own farm again. Let's look for a farm in South Africa. I'm sure we'll find something, I told her. Every six weeks, we were able to have a long weekend, and so we used the time to begin our search. I want a sugarcane farm, I insisted, until I found out what they were sold for. <laughs> My sights lowered very quickly. Okay, I'll settle for a cattle farm. We looked and looked, and eventually we found a piece of ground just outside Great Town, KwaZulu-Natal. Welcome to our new home, I announced to our three children. It was the 9th of August, 1977. Little did we realize that this was to be the birthplace of Shalom and a ministry that was literally going to touch thousands of people by God's grace. Our farm wasn't exactly a showpiece. A local farmer had gotten into financial difficulty and had subdivided his farm. I'd put my deposit down on a piece of maize land. It was totally overgrown with scrub wattle timber and unkempt. Worse, there was no water anywhere in sight. But it was home. Life was not very easy. I hired a caravan for 200 rand and parked it amongst the bushes. Jill was an angel. She never complained, although she was six months pregnant with our second son. Every day she got the children ready for school. She would take the car and a 20-liter plastic bucket and get water from a neighboring farm. Washing, ironing, and cooking under these conditions was very difficult. Our neighboring farmer had mercy on us. Here, he said, use my water cart. You can park it right next to your caravan. That was like a miracle to us. I then found a damp spot in a flay land. There must be water here, I said enthusiastically. Someone offered his water divining services, but we turned his offer down. We dug a hole in the ground with a shovel. It was another miracle. The water started coming out of the ground. We were so excited. We worked long hours from sunrise to sunset, seven days a week, trying to make something of our farm. I built a very small pole and daub house, a traditional Zulu house. It wasn't much bigger than the caravan, but it was an improvement. Later, we knocked a hole in the wall and built more rooms. We still live in the original home. Those white people are living harder than us, said the Zulu people. 
We give them six months and they'll be gone. That was uh, 20 years ago. Some of them are gone, but we're still here. <laughs> Life was extremely hard and the pressure was beginning to build up. I was working day and night. What I didn't realize was that God was allowing it to happen. In my opinion, I was a self-made man. I'd been successful in the past and I would do it again. There was no room for God in my reckoning. And so I got stuck in. I managed to secure a contract to grow seed maize. And the first year we got a bumper crop. That was great. I put down a deposit of 5,000 rand on the farm. I will pay the balance of this farm in one year, I told the owner. That was really quite a statement. Some farmers take three or four generations to pay their farms off. But I was determined. Working seven days a week from morning to night, carving the little farm out of the bush with one tractor, pulling trees out of the dense forest one by one was a daunting task. The continuous stress was beginning to take its toll. I kept telling myself once the farm was secured, I would find the peace and contentment I looked for. But the harder I worked, the more I wondered what I was doing it for. There has to be more to live for, I pondered. I was experiencing the truth of Mark chapter 8 and verse 36 in the Bible. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It was a lonely time. When the sun went down, it was so dark, you couldn't see a thing. And we had to use a small lighting plant at night. We were surrounded by trees. You couldn't see your neighbor. We had no telephone. We had no radio. I was a total stranger in a strange land. I didn't know the people in the area and I couldn't speak the Zulu language. Things really began to get on top of me. I was right in the deep end and far from God. My temper was on a very short fuse. The first months that we were on the farm, no less than 40 Zulu men came to work there and left saying that this Mulungo, white man, is a shranya, he's a madman. I didn't realize just how short that fuse was until the night an eight-ton truck drove onto my farm. I confronted the big Zulu driver. What are you doing here and what do you want? Oh, he says, I've come to collect my timber. This is now my farm and you are not welcome here. My blood was beginning to boil. He looked at me angrily. The farmer sold it to me and I want to take the timber. What I said to him was unprintable. If you go into the land and get stuck, you're in big trouble. I informed him. I suggest that you get off my farm now. He glared at me, put his foot on the accelerator, and his big blue truck was headed right into the plantation. At 10 o'clock that night, I heard the truck finally come out. I know exactly what happened, I muttered to Jill. They got stuck in there and probably had to call another 20 Zulus to push them out. That would have cost them a lot of money, and he's coming to settle with us. I rushed outside with a flashlight, swearing as I went, What do you think you're doing? I yelled at them. And at that, he put his truck into gear and ran it straight at me. I jumped out of the way and shook my fist at him as he drove off. Talk about traumatic. About two hours later, we heard another vehicle, a combi this time. Immediately, I put two and two together, and it made a resounding five. They've come back to get us, Jill. Stay in the house with the children. I rushed outside with an axe in my hand, 
and flew at the six young men who had just climbed out of the combi. I would get them before they got me. I'll never forget the look on their faces as they jumped back into their combi and took off down the road. Unbeknown to me, they were the sons of the old man driving the truck, and he hadn't come home yet, and they were just out there looking for him. It was an eventful night by all standards. What unnerved me, though, was the emotional state that I was in. I realized that I was at breaking point. Thank you for listening to this episode of Faith Like Potatoes.